0: for the name of Jesus, the only name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved, we can be reconciled to God through that great name. And we're going to hear a little bit more about that in our passage today, Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. So welcome back to the book of Acts. And at this point in the book of Acts, if you're brand new to North Roanoke, we're so thankful you're here. Uh, we generally work our way through books of the Bible, and we, we find ourselves, as we've been navigating the book of Acts, here at the beginning of chapter 21, and we'll cover verses 1 through 16. And to sort of set the tone and the context, at this point in the story, Paul has just wrapped up his farewell address to the elders of the Ephesians church, telling them to watch out for themselves and for the flock of God, the blood-bought flock of God, and he, he gives them their assignment, which is riveted in this unchanging gospel. And Marita, Tony Marita, in his commentary on Acts, says something very helpful. He says, "There's nothing quite like pastoral ministry. We should be careful not to build our philosophy of pastoral ministry from popular leadership books, but rather from the Bible. Pastoral leadership is unique and important, therefore let everyone who aspires to the office of overseer do so with humility and great dependence upon the great shepherd. And it is this dependency upon Jesus and this determination to do His will as expressed in His word that requires a willingness to face adversity for pastors and, quite frankly, for all believers as well. And when I say adversity, I'm not talking about a hangnail. I'm not talking about that you stubbed your toe when you got up early this morning to make it to church on time. I'm talking about even life-altering, life-threatening, soul-rending adversity. Recall what Jesus had said to Paul back in chapter 9 when God saved him on the road to Damascus. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, the name that we just sang about. Church, kingdom advance and suffering often unjustly go together. As we follow Paul's ministry, we see him suffer not only physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. His sufferings include not being able to please Jesus and please everyone at the same time. They include being misrepresented and maligned by people in churches that he loves. They include abandonment from former partners in the gospel ministry, 2 Timothy 4.10. And in today's text, his adversity also includes the testing of his resolve to do the will of the Lord. Despite the well-intentioned warnings of fellow believers, Paul refuses to be stopped in completing the final stretch of his journey to get to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome because he's been resolved in his spirit by way of the Holy Spirit to complete this journey since back in chapter 19 down in verse 14 of the text we're about to read we're going to find that Paul would not be persuaded to abandon his mission despite other believers telling him to abandon his mission even even Paul excuse me even Luke and even the people traveling with him are like Paul just stop just just quit just throw in the towel don't finish the trip so I want to share with you this morning about the unpersuadable Paul When is it right to stand alone in doing the will of God? Would you hear with me? God's Word, Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then... We went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping. And breaking my heart, or better translated, my resolve. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Verse 15, after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom... We should lodge. Would you pray with me, God? We want these sixteen verses of your word to impact us for the glory of Christ, to, to shape our souls in a way that is is Christward and Spirit led and driven, God, such that we would be conformed more to the image of Christ in the hearing of your word and and less like our fleshly selves. God, I pray that that this morning your church would have a godly resolve to do the will of the Lord as revealed in your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On December the 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, a black woman by the name of Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a crowded bus to a white man as the law unjustly required of her at the time. This lone act of courage led to a bus boycott and eventually to a Supreme Court decision that bus segregation was unconstitutional. Along the way, Ms. Parks lost her job lived in revel- and lived in relative obscurity until later when she was recognized as an American hero a hero who willingly took a stand to help our country take steps toward regarding all citizens as equal under the law. We love that story, don't we? It's a good story. We love a good story about people standing alone to stand for their convictions. When Jesus declared he must suffer and die, do you remember what happened to Jesus? Peter pulled him aside. He said, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. Don't, don't stand alone and go into the cross. And yet Jesus did. And when he was betrayed, all of his disciples abandoned him. All of his disciples, not just Peter. it said that they all abandoned him. Without Jesus, church, who stood alone on conviction, we'd have no hope of salvation. The story of salvation leading to Christ and flowing from Christ is filled with inflection points where people stood alone in standing for the Lord. Noah and Rahab and David and Esther and Daniel, just to name a few. It's no accident that we love it when people stand alone in standing for conviction and purpose and mission. But we also love it when people make decisions by involving others, don't we? He's a good team leader. He got everybody in on the same direction. Biblically, there's a time for both, right? In Proverbs chapter 11, 14, we read where there's no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. And yet in Proverbs 14, 12, it says there's a way that seems right to man or to mankind, but in the end, its way is death. Majority rule only works when the majority is godly. When the majority is informed in a godly way, I think as Americans we, we can see the dangers of just throwing it out there for a vote and seeing what sticks. In this passage, Paul is surrounded by a multitude of well-meaning counselors. There are counselors listening, by the way, to the Holy Spirit. They are for Paul. They are for his safety. They, they love him And yet, they are absolutely wrong. (laughs) So how do we know? How do we know when it's right to go it alone? Or to remain, as Paul is in this text, unpersuadable? I want to show you three principles from God's Word this morning. About being unpersuadable in our resolve to follow the will of the Lord we're going to be unpersuadable, when it's right to be unpersuadable, when when we know it's good to be unpersuadable, we need to be following, firstly, spirit-given commands, even when presented with spirit-prompted concerns. Spirit-given commands are what we follow. In verses 1 through 3, Luke tells us of their travels from Miletus to Tyre, and in Tyre In verse 4, we see that Paul, Luke, and their companions sought out the disciples there. It seems they had made really good time from Miletus because you remember in Miletus, he's worried about getting to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and now he stays there for seven days. They must have had a, a really good trip, perhaps even literally a miraculous trip from Miletus down to Tyre. We never read about Paul planting a church in Tyre, but back in chapter 15, verse 3, we find him passing through this region on the way from Syria and Antioch to Jerusalem. So, so Paul and his companion, companions, they seek out believers in Tyre, and they find them, and they, they stay for seven days, presumably to have at least one opportunity to do this, to gather with the church for worship. We, we can see the genuineness of, of the faith of these believers in the way they treat Paul and his companions, right? We see their spirit-given love and and selfless hospitality. Paul and his companions arrive, apparently unannounced, and the the church gives them lodging and food for seven days. They're they're living out 1 Peter 4-9, which says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We see their love on display, not only as they open their homes and their pantries, but even in the departure of Paul and his team. Look down in verse 5. Paul and the team departed and they went on their journey. They all, with wives and children, entire families, the whole church comes out and accompanies them until they're outside of the city. And then in verse 6, we learn they followed them all the way down to the shoreline where they board the boat and they, they pray together before the families then, then return to their homes, knowing it's the, it's the last, it's probably the first and last time they'll, they'll ever see Paul. This is... This is spirit-filled love and hospitality church that's in action. Entire Christian families interrupting their lives to host Paul and his team and then departing to the beach to, the beach to send them off with prayer and a heartfelt farewell. And it's, this is important to see so we can grasp what God wants us to grasp in these verses. Church, God is showing us that Christians who are acting or advising us through the Spirit, do you see that verse 4? can wrongly apply right impressions made by the Spirit. This through the Spirit means, I think the New American Standard Version, 1995 edition, gets it right in their little footnote, impressions made by the Spirit. So the Spirit is impressing upon these believers a reality that He's already revealed to Paul. And you know what that reality is? Getting to Jerusalem, and once you get to Jerusalem, it's going to be tough. Paul already knows this. This is not a news flash for Paul. Acts 20-23, imprisonment and afflictions await Paul. So here's the question that is raised by verse 4. And it's an incredibly important question for us to get right. Is Paul rejecting a warning from the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem? Is the Spirit who commanded Paul to go to Jerusalem now commanding Paul not to go to Jerusalem? And the answer is absolutely not. These believers are rightly perceiving that it's going to be tough. They're, wrong, they're wrongly applying the impression of the Spirit. Since it's going to be tough, just don't go. The, Paul is not rejecting the counsel of God. God is not contradicting God. It's a basic rule of biblical interpretation. That's why we argue from the simple To the complex, and we interpret the complex in light of the simple and the clear and the plain. So, what's going on then? These these believers have accurately heard warnings, or they've accurately discerned that it's going to be difficult from the Spirit, and they are speaking out of Spirit-given love for Paul, but what they are recommending is the wrong course of action. The Spirit has already commanded Paul to go. The Spirit does not warn about. What, Paul, what, a, what is awaiting Paul in order for him to stop? Why is the Spirit telling them this then? To strengthen their resolve and our resolve to follow God's word and his will even when it's difficult. Did y'all catch that? Why is the Spirit telling us it's going to be difficult? And yet Paul is still supposed to go. So we would recognize sometimes we're supposed to do the difficult in following Jesus. The Spirit is showing us, as He always does, the worthiness of Jesus. The worthiness of Jesus, church, is displayed when we do the hard thing because Jesus is our satisfying Savior in all things. Jesus is our everything. His mission is worth our all even when the road is filled with suffering. Doing the Lord's will does not always feel great. But it will always demonstrate the greatness of Jesus. Did y'all know that? Doesn't, it's not always easy. One pastor recently said this, when your final authority is your heart, you will regularly twist scripture to say whatever pleases your heart. The heart of these Christians doesn't want Paul to go because they love Paul. Leading a church involves difficult decision-making. It's one reason the Lord gives elders to churches to discern the will of the Lord together as they hear from and engage with a Spirit-filled congregation. Ultimately, the body must approve or affirm major decisions, but the Spirit has given the elders the special responsibility of assessing the various reactions and promptings of the Spirit, comparing with them with God's Word and God's heart as revealed in the Word, and urging the church to pursue a path that maximally glorifies the name of Christ, no matter the cost. And there's always a cost. Paul shows us there's a time to be unpersuadable. Spirit-prompted concerns never trump Spirit-given commands. Many times, the insights of others led by the Spirit will help clarify what God desires, but we must never appeal to our feelings... To hinder our pursuit of what God's commanded in His Word. When it seems this is happening, what Paul shows us is that we must remain unpersuadable. Secondly, the text shows us, in verses 7-12, through 12, that we must not prioritize easy when following Jesus. Now, when you first heard the gospel, it may have been presented to you as something like, believe in Jesus and all your dreams will come true and you'll get a ticket to go to Disney World. Who's not going to believe in that Jesus? Right? And then, somewhere along the way, you realize what you signed up for in following Jesus was war. was spiritual battle and adversity that you never have when you're swimming in the same direction as the world. Back in 2005, the uh, office products merchandiser named Staples. Anybody ever heard of Staples? They introduced ads featuring a big red easy button. Remember the easy button? They presented their company, they wanted to present their company as the leader in simplifying office supply issues. You got, a, got an office issue, you need some copy paper, hit the easy button. In, in time, the idea of having a button to make life easy so resonated in our culture that they actually created a toy easy button that you could buy and put in your office. So it went from this advertising concept to like there's an actual easy button on your desk and someone comes in and they ask some ridiculous question and you're like, well, I'll just hit the easy button. That was easy. Literally, you would hit it, it would say, That was easy. Man, that's that's what we want, right? We want an easy button life. That's the thesis of our world, is it not? Whatever's easiest is best. And let's be honest, sometimes easy is good. I praise God for Kroger. Kroger click list. Except when they give you one banana. (laughs) When you ask for bananas. Yeah. I praise God for technology that is so simple that even I can figure it out. And in 2023, frankly, all technology should be that simple. Like just make it easy that anybody, even a monkey could do it. But when it comes to following Jesus, sometimes our desire for easy can lead us to not pursue God's best. It can derail us from delighting in Jesus and doing His will, who is worth it even when it's hard. And what I want to tell you this morning, church, is Jesus is a sure and worthy Savior, but He is no easy button. Becoming like Jesus, and following Jesus involves the hard work of learning the selflessness of the Savior. God's call upon Paul's life included suffering and giving up himself for the glory of his Savior and the good of still more who would hear the gospel through his suffering journey to Jerusalem and on to Rome. Beloved, we need to recall our master's words in Luke nine, twenty three and twenty four. It's not just Paul who's been called to suffer, but Jesus says, If anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But church, we all want the easy button. Some who have become disillusioned with church and with Jesus and the gospel have become disillusioned not because they lost their salvation but because they were never truly saved. They believed in the Jesus is my easy button Jesus and not in the Jesus calls me to die to myself every day Jesus so that I can pursue Him and become like Him and reflect Him and trust Him and share Him in a hard and confused and complicated world. Which Jesus have you believed in? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Do you know the Jesus who walked Golgotha's hill and endured the cross with joy for the sake of securing salvation for sinners? Do you believe Jesus is worth doing hard things that the hard things to align our assumptions and practices as his people with his word, both its expressed commands and the heart of God in its implications? Do you believe that local churches should be intentional about bearing with one another in love? Do you believe Jesus is worthy of you learning, excuse me, you leaning into this season of parenting in your toddler's life to help them see their sin now, see their need for a Savior now? Or are you going to let a screen raise them and let their rebellion rise and their sin slide only to regret it later? Which, Jesus. Jesus, have you believed in? Are you going to quit on your marriage because it's a hard season right now? Or are you going to pursue the glory of Christ and the image of Christ by staying and praying and out serving your spouse? So help you God. Jesus is not an easy button. Notice what happens in verse 7 through 12. Paul and his companions uh, arrive in Caesarea in verse 8 where Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven who was appointed to serve all the way back in Acts chapter 6 where he had settled down after sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. Now it's it's helpful to recall that Luke is writing an historical account for Theophilus. You remember Theophilus? All the way back at the beginning of Acts 1. Theophilus is like this patron who has sponsored the writing of Acts. He, he wants to get an accurate account of, of what Jesus did and continued to do through the church. And what we discover here is Luke had an opportunity to interview Philip himself about what Philip did. So you're like, well, how did Luke know all this stuff about Philip? Well, Philip told him when they were hanging out in Caesarea. And in verse 9, Luke tells us that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while the Bible is clear in 1 Timothy 2.12 that women are not supposed to teach or exercise authority over men, meaning adult men in the church, they are not forbidden from proclaiming the truth generally at home and in daily life. These daughters, in a sense, followed in their father's footsteps, devoting their lives to proclaiming the truth of God in their sphere of influence. So the Bible, yes, puts parameters on women teaching and praying in the church, but it doesn't mean women should not study or think theologically. To the contrary, church, we desperately need women who are thinking and studying theologically. We desperately need women who will know and proclaim the biblical truth and counsel women about being a godly woman, raising children in the word, motherhood, and a myriad of other issues and applications of the gospel to living as blood-bought women of God for the glory of Christ, all in cooperation with and under under the oversight of godly elders. Luke gives details about Philip and his family to remind us that we're reading accurate history. He has firsthand details to let us know Acts is facts. Then in verse 10, Luke gets back to his primary point as Agabus in the style of an Old Testament prophet who would sy- symbolize what they were saying. Think of like Jeremiah eating the scroll, right? Agabus in the style of an Old Testament prophet carrying out some symbolic actions comes down from Judea And he takes Paul's belt and he binds himself with it. And he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, what's interesting here is technically it's going to be the Romans and not the Jews who bind Paul. And, And there are some knucklehead biblical scholars who say, see, the Bible's in error. No, it's not in error. You've got to know how to read the Bible and understand prophecy. He's not being word for word a literalist here. He's, say, he's speaking what is called causatively. And all he's saying is that what the Jews say about Paul and do to Paul is going to lead to his binding and imprisonment in Gentile, that is Roman, hands. Paul has, has known something like this was going to happen for a, minute, for a while now, right? He's known about it since he gave his speech to the Ephesian elders. He's been in Caesarea now many days, verse 10, and he's almost certainly mentioned God's call to get to Jerusalem and then to Rome. And yet, when Agabus makes his prophetic warning, notice how the people, even Luke and Paul's own traveling companions, respond in verse 12. All right, do you see this? So they've been in Tyre, and the Christians are like, Paul, don't go. Don't, just don't go. You've, you've faced enough. You've suffered enough. You've been in prison enough. Just check out and retire, bro. Just hang out with us entire. It's good. God is sovereign. If he wants to reach the nations, he'll do it with somebody else. And then he gets to Caesarea in an Old Testament style prophet. Acts is a book of transition between the Old Testament and the, the, the New Covenant life of the church. And we see where this Old Testament style prophet Agabus come down. And it's going to be tough. They're going to arrest you. Is that true? Yes, they are. And what, are the, what happens in verse 12? Don't go. Paul, just don't go. Once more, the people of God are wrong about what the man of God should be doing. These are Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're calling him and urging him and begging him not to do what the Spirit has commanded him to do. Why on the earth would they do that? Because they love him. And when we love people, we generally don't go, man, I sure hope you have hardship and adversity all all the days of your life. I, I love my bride. I just hope you have a miserable life. I love you so much. I mean that's that's not that's not what we do when we love people, right? I mean when when I uh, when I surrendered to God's call to pastoral ministry in two thousand and five and quit a job and a career that was going really well, I told my mama what I was doing, and she was not joking. She looked at me dead in the eye and said, you're crazy. Why would you do that? And in a sense, she was right. She was speaking out of love, love as she knew it. There's, there was a lot easier path to take, but it wasn't the path that God intended. Church, the Spirit is teaching us a lesson about love. In following Jesus, the easy path is not usually the Spirit-directed path. You want to love your child? Discipline them early, clearly, and predictably. You want your marriage to work as Christ intends? Recognize it is a gift of God to expose your selfishness and give you countless opportunities to learn how to be selfless and learn how to forgive. You want to be generous like Jesus? Then don't buy stuff that enslaves you to crippling debt. You want your child to know and love Jesus and his people? Be present, be consistent, be on time, bring and open your Bible, and ask good follow-up questions over lunch. You want your boneheaded boss to be saved? Serve her rather than talking about her. You want to follow a crucified and risen Savior, choose to die so the life of Jesus in you will be displayed no matter the cost. Beloved, to follow Jesus as individuals and as a church, we've got to jettison our addiction to the easy button. Church is not a buffet where everyone gets a little sampling of what they want. It is a one-course feast, and the feast is Jesus Christ. We need to recognize our fleshly desires for ease and comfort and familiarity are often at odds with opportunities to magnify Christ who suffered and bled and died for us and our salvation. Are you glad this morning that Jesus didn't choose easy? Aren't you glad we have a Savior who didn't take the easy way out? We can spend our lives chasing easy or we can die daily, glorify Christ and truly live. And then we see in closing in verses 13 through 16, Paul's been warned twice now. He's been urged not to go twice now. And what does Paul do? He goes. Church, when the spirit authored command of Christ tells us to go, we have to go. When it tells us to do the hard thing for the glory of Christ, we have to do it. And as a church, we've done some hard things as we've emerged from COVID. We've done them together. We've done them in obedience to God's Word and the heart of God is revealed in His Word. And we have done it with a dead-set, riveted commitment to obey the heart of God as revealed in His Word. We are to be one people, worshiping one God, multi-generational, not divided in a myriad of ways. We are to be united in Christ and we have done that and God is honoring that right now. And I praise God for it. So, what we see finally in Paul is we must have an unpersuadable resolve to do the Lord's will no matter the cost. In verse 13, Paul challenges these believers with some strong words What are you doing? Paul is not asking for information here. It's like when I find my kids doing something crazy that they knew they shouldn't be doing, and I ask them, What are you doing? I mean, I know what they're doing, right? So it, what does it mean? Stop it. That's what Paul is saying. Stop it. What are they doing? They're, they're weeping and they're attempting to break his heart or, or better translated, his resolve. His commitment to do what God has asked him to do. You're trying to break my resolve. And I... I want to be resolved to do the will of the Lord. Don't come up in here and break my resolve to do what God wants me to do. That's not helpful. And it's, it's misplaced and it's unhelpful for two reasons. One, God's already commanded him to go. And two, look at verse 13. He is ready to go. I was ready. I am ready. Stop trying to make me not ready. He's ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Church, are you ready to do these things for Jesus? you ready to go wherever He calls, wherever He sends, no matter the cost? Not for my name or for your name, but for the name of Jesus. We just sang 30 minutes ago about the name of Jesus. It's beautiful and wonderful and powerful has no rival? Are you trying to rival the name of Jesus in your own walk with Christ? The name of Jesus refers to His lordship, His sovereign power and authority, which is absolute over all things. Paul has been graciously and undeservedly rescued by Jesus who alone has a name by which we can be saved. He is God in the flesh. He can make us new on the inside so we can inherit his new creation. So Paul is pleased to spend his life for the sake of his name. And if the name of Jesus being honored means his death, then so be it. And in hearing this, these believers in Caesarea and Paul's companions, including Luke, finally say, what do they say in verse 14? It took them 14 verses to get there, but what do they finally say? They say, let the will of the Lord be done. May God prevail. May God reign. May Christ be exalted. Jesus, we will... Obey you no matter what, no matter the cost, because we trust you and you gave your life for us. With this statement, they are surrendering their comfort and security and familiarity and preferences to the Lord's care and His sovereignty and His prerogatives. They are saying, we will walk in obedience no matter the cost because Jesus has already proven His love with the high cost of the cross. They're saying, if we've got to endure pain and difficulty now, it will surely be worth the glory we behold in time when we see you face to face. This is the statement of a maturing believer and a maturing church. God, no matter the pain, obedience is the path we will choose your will be done because we know that your will is the glory of your son and we long for the glory of christ more than we long for life itself they understood more fully that they had not been saved for their temporal comforts but for the glory of christ who owes us nothing and yet graciously gives us himself in the gospel The suffering of Christ leading to our salvation makes us willing to suffer for the sake of others. And in verse 15 and 16, they make the trip to Jerusalem where there's a guy named Manasin, an early disciple who shows them hospitality. And you say, well, why is that little detail in there? Once again, Luke is just telling us, he's reminding us, I didn't make this up, Acts is facts. And for Paul... This is the calm before the storm. A storm that the Spirit warned him about, not so that he would escape it, but so that he would run into it for the glory of the name above every name. North Roanoke Baptist Church, may it be said in the register of heaven that God finds us unpersuadably driven to do the will of the Lord for the sake of the name which is above all others. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, as our worship team comes and as we consider the privilege and the joy of being enlisted in your mission. God, help us to feel and to know and to, to discern, God, how great Jesus is. God, even in the, the fire that, that certainly someone in this room is experiencing today, even in the testing and the suffering that comes from doing your will at times, God, May you be their stronghold, May you be their anchor, May you be their aim. God lift their countenance and, and direct their gaze to the glory of Christ as they remain committed to doing your will. God keep them in the battle and remember that the, help them to remember that the battle is yours, and that in Christ our identity, because you've paid everything that that we owed, our identity is is not subject to the whims or the opinions of men, but God, it is is anchored in what you say of us, and we give you praise for that. And God, I I ask in a message about doing the hard thing for the glory of Christ that, that anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who hasn't yet beheld your glory and salvation and doesn't even really know what we're talking about, God, that you would bring them to saving faith today. And for the Christian, who, if they're honest, is sometimes looking for the, the easy button Jesus rather than for the Jesus who sustains through the storm, God, that they, they, they would just do business with you and, and lean into doing your will even when it's hard this morning. God, grant freedom in this place to respond however you would have us to respond because we want your will to be done for the glory of your son and in jesus name we ask it amen thank you for listening to the north roanoke podcast you can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your devices app store just search for north roanoke we hope to meet you soon